You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, well, good evening. Merry Christmas. Hey, if, uh, let's see, I need a... A nimble volunteer. Hey, Stephen, if this candle gets all the way to the bottom and sets this on fire, you got me, all right? So I'm, I'm watching it. Um, hey, uh, so here's the thing. I, I have been trying to think over the last couple of weeks, we've been studying the book of John, uh, the first 18 verses, and I've been trying to think about Christmas memories that I've been having, and most of them have been incredibly pleasant, but I have not been able to get one Christmas memory out of my mind, and so I've got to tell you about it. It was when I was in the ninth grade, and I had a ninth grade English teacher, and his name was Mr. Askew. And uh, Mr. Askew is an unfortunate name, but Mr. Askew was my ninth grade English teacher, and he was different than all the other English teachers. Mr. Askew was an old school English teacher. He wasn't young like all the other English teachers. He was old, and he uh, had old ways, and his old ways were not the ways of poetry and reading and games and frolicking. Mr. Askew loved grammar, and he loved diagramming. And that's all we did the entire year. We diagrammed sentences. We read sentences, and we diagrammed sentences. And while all of my friends that were in the other classes that were young and progressive, they read poetry, they had Christmas parties, we diagrammed sentences. The only fun thing that I can ever remember ever doing in Mr. Askew's class was at Christmas, we got to sing a song. And the song was a preposition song. I'm not kidding. And the preposition song, the only fun thing about it was that we got to sing it to the tune of We Wish You a Merry Christmas. And so I thought, well, what a better way to begin this Christmas Eve sermon then us all singing together the preposition song. I could not in any way appreciate Mr. Askew in the ninth grade. I found myself so thankful for him. So many years later, I showed up in a, in a Greek class, someplace I never thought I'd end up being uh, in seminary many years later, where I was sitting there learning about this other language. And one of the things you discover if you ever end up learning another language is one of the first things you have to do when you begin to learn another language is you have to make sure you know the language that you, uh, your native language first. You have to know how it works before you can learn another language. And I was so blessed to understand how the English language worked going into it. I could diagram the English language, learn how to be able, I could understand how the Greek language worked. And one of the things that's so important in the Greek language is how prepositions work. And so I want to teach you two Greek prepositions, very quickly, before we move into this verse that I want to uh, look at this evening, and it is John 1, verse 18. It's the end of this poem that we've been looking at by John, the first 18 verses. The, the verse that John has at the very end of it is John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, he says. The only God, or maybe you could even translate it, the, uh, the unique one who is God, Jesus who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's what we're going to look at tonight. 
But there's two prepositions I want to tell you about in the Greek, and they, and they help us to understand tonight. And the two prepositions are this. One preposition is a preposition called ek, and the other one is a preposition ice. And they're completely opposite of each other. Ek is this preposition that means out of or from. If you have something stationary, ek means it comes out of or from it. Ice is exactly opposite. It means to put something into it or to place upon or something that goes towards it. The word in the Greek that means he has made him known is a word um, that is made up. It ha- it's a verb, but it has this Greek preposition put on the front of it, ek. Okay? He's made him known. It's a word we actually have a word in the English we call it exegesis. It means that Jesus has made him known. He has exegeted the Father. He has told us who he is. He has interpreted God for us. He has told us who God is. He has pulled out. He has set forth. He has completely laid forth. He has interpreted. He has taken who God is and pulled out for us who God is and laid Him before us so that we can see Him. He is the exegete of God. The opposite of the word exegesis is a word eisegesis where we say instead of interpreting and pulling out what is there, we put into something what's there. Instead of pulling out a meaning, we put a meaning into. We place a meaning on top of. No one's ever seen God, the only God, or the unique one who, the unique God who is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's what John's saying. He's saying he's explained him. He's interpreted him. Jesus didn't come to tell us about God. He didn't come to be another voice for God. Not another person to explain God for us. He's not the PR manager who's the fixer of the imager of the image of God. You know, he didn't come to fix this tyrant of the Old Testament. That's not who he is. He didn't come come to speak for God. He came to speak as God. He came to live as God. He came to he came to do as God. He was, he is God. He, he did not come and receive a, a revelation in time like an Old Testament prophet. He, he didn't come and receive inspiration from the Holy Spirit. He didn't come and receive inspiration and pass it on to others. He himself, John says, is the eternal Logos. He's the eternal Word, John said. He's the essential truth is the claim that John makes. He's made known on earth what he beheld with the Father and heard from the Father as the Son from before the foundations of the world, from eternity. That's what John's claim is. It's not just information about God that Jesus collected over time, but Jesus is making known what he's seen and heard from before his incarnation in eternity and in time because he's seeing and hearing and knowing of God the Father as the only Son. What he's seeing and hearing and knowing is timeless and limitless. Jesus said, if you've seen me, 
You've seen the Father. He's made him known. And, and we know this. There, there are no end to opinions about God. We, we, we might call this, instead of exegesis, eisegesis. No end to opinions about what God is like what, what, or what he should be like. But maybe you've heard phrases like this, or maybe you've said phrases like this. Listen, I, I can't worship a God who, and then you fill in the blank, a, a God who allows such injustice. Maybe you've felt that. A God who allows such suffering, or a God who's so intolerant. But we can be honest. We're uncomfortable with a God who offends us. But if we're even more honest, actually we're uncomfortable with being offended, aren't we? I mean, we all are. And there's two reasons why we might be offended. One reason is that something's truly offensive. I mean, we're offended because something's truly offensive. In fact, when you read through Scripture, you find that Jesus was offended. He would encounter people in places and situations, and he was truly offended. The other reason that we're offended is because we're confronted with truths that make us uncomfortable. You read the gospel, you also find that not only was Jesus offended, you find that Jesus was offensive. It doesn't surprise you, though. If you've ever had a close friend, any close friend in your life, you know that if you have a close friend, that one that's close enough to risk from time to time to tell you the truth, you, you know what it is to be offended, right? I mean, you, you also know what a loving act of friendship that that can be. Someone loving you enough, well, loving someone isn't about not ever offending them, right? Loving someone's about being able to tell them the truth with grace and mercy and love, seeking their best trusting another person that they're seeking your best, sometimes it means being offended. It, it'll mean being told the truth that we don't want to hear. It, it means hearing things that are hard and sometimes hurt. It means hearing things by someone who deeply and dearly loves us. You see, I think this is why so many people have missed out on who God is. Missed out on who the God of the Bible is anyway. They don't. They've read into him what they want him to be. And so in one sense, he's an opinion or an imaginary friend. It's not just men and women today. Listen, this is not new. This is men and women throughout all ages. They've created their own gods, a Build-A-Bear kind of a god. Uh, uh, one writer calls it a Stepford god. He goes on to say, that These are gods essentially of your own making and not a god with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your god can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or a marriage, 
Well, you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's the precondition for it. And John here is saying that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to make God known to us. He goes on to say something else. Who is at the Father's side. He's made him known so that you can know him. The the old King James says it this way. He's come from his bosom. Now, Now, we don't talk like that anymore because it sounds kind of funny. But it's a phrase of intimacy. In fact, I think it may be a kind of intimacy that's lost on us today. Kind of in the advent of social media and the way that we connect with each other today, it's it's really maybe a form of intimacy that's being lost on us today. But actually, if you were in the 4 o'clock service, you you would have seen all these little bitty kids. You you would have caught a glimpse of it. As as, As moms or dads or you really saw it when the grandmothers or grandfathers were holding their little grandchildren right, right here, this bosom area. And you, and you couldn't hear them, but you'd see their lips move. They would whisper to their grandchildren. And their grandchildren could hear them. Nobody else around here could hear them, but, but they could hear them, this whisper, this intimacy. That's what it's talking about. To be in the bosom of someone is is an ancient way to say a Hebrew phrase which expresses the deepest intimacy possible in human life. Like a mother with a child or a husband with a wife or or two friends who, who are in complete communion with each other. So when John uses this about Jesus with the Father, what he's saying is it is complete and uninterrupted intimacy. It's because Jesus is so intimate with the Father. He is one with the Father. He can reveal Him. He is able to say. He's able to reveal Him. He knows the heart of the Father. They They are one with each other. When Jesus acts and does and speaks and says and feels... And so when you see Jesus, you see God. In Jesus, the distant, unknowable, invisible, unreachable God has come to men, and God can never again be a stranger to us. So so it's that level of intimacy that that level of knowledge that, that John is saying God wants us to know Him. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He sent His Son. So I'm going to talk about that a little more in just a second. But Christmas, it can be one of those weird times, though, if we're not careful. It can be, as my friend Eric Barton says, this great adventure in missing the point. All sentiment, but nothing sacred. Nostalgic, but nothing meaningful. 
good feelings, but not abiding joy. And I think one of the reasons is because Christmas theology doesn't seem that threatening, does it? Or at least we don't think it does. I mean, you have a baby, you have a teenage mother, you have Joseph, you have shepherds and wise men in a manger and a nice, tidy nativity scene. We, we, we sing songs, we have nice parties, we, we eat cookies, we decorate trees, we exchange presents, we have time off. It all seems very safe. Let me just say, I, I, Christmas theology is the furthest place from safe that you can get when you really ponder the claims that Jesus makes about himself. In fact, I'll give you one example and I'll move on. It's Luke's gospel. Jesus has been casting out demons, Luke 11. Spiritual warfare, religious, it's, it's, it's crazy. Religious leaders, Jesus casting out demons, r- religious leaders... Jesus casting out demons. Religious leaders are saying he's doing it by the power of demons. Jesus says, I'm casting out demons. How can I be doing it by the power of demons? It's like a house divided, and it's this incredibly tense scene. I mean, it's so tense. You can feel the tension, and there's this crowd watching it. And so one woman, this poor woman, you can just feel it. And so she doesn't know what to do. Luke eleven twenty seven. 27, she raises her hand, and she like tries to Jesus juke Jesus. It's the only way I can say it. And she says, in Luke eleven twenty seven. 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice, and she said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. In other words, you know what she's saying? Hey, Jesus. It's getting kind of tense around here. All this demon stuff and all this heavy theology. How about we just go back to Christmas? How about just the nativity scene? Can't we just go back there and sing, we wish you a Merry Christmas? And he says, blessed rather are those It's a nice blessing. I appreciate the blessing. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Guard it. Protect it. Watch over it. Don't let it go. Who believe who I am. He has made him known so that you can know him. Let me say it this one last way and then I'll close 1961, when a Russian leader, Nikita Khrushchev, uh, he defiantly declared, it was, Russia was openly it was declaring it was a thing, they were declaring about themselves that they were a atheist. Atheism was a religion, I guess. Well, it's not a religion, but that's, what they were, that's how they would have said it. Cosmonaut returns from space. And... Um, He comes back from space, and one of the things he says in 1961 is he came back from outer space, and he says, I came back from, I went to space, I came back, I I didn't find God while I was out there. So a New York magazine asked C.S. Lewis if he would respond to that statement, 1961. Lewis begins this way. He says, the Russians, I'm told, reported that they've not found God in outer space. 
Well, looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you'll find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare's in one sense present at every moment and every play, but he's never present in the same way as Hamlet or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused throughout the play like a gas. If there were an idiot who thought the play existed on their own without an author or belief in Shakespeare would not be much affected by his saying, quite truly, that he'd studied all the plays and never found Shakespeare in them. The only way Hamlet can know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. Hamlet is not going to find anything out about Shakespeare by going up to the rafters of the stage or looking upstairs. Only if Shakespeare, or only if the Creator by revelation reveals something to the creature. You know something about the Creator because He reveals it. He writes Himself, as Lewis is saying, into the play. But what John is saying is that God did something much better than that. He wrote Himself into the play. He wrote Himself into our lives. He, he did it so that we could know Him. And John's saying know Him intimately so we can know the unfoldings of the heart of God. It's by the Son that we know the nature of the Father. We, we look to Jesus, we see the tear on the face of God. We see God with a little child whom He calls to Himself. We see God standing at the grave of Lazarus with a cry of anger. We see Him groaning because of the effects of sin. We see God racing down the road because the the prodigal's returning and he's falling on his neck and kissing him. Jesus is the picture of God, the revelation of God found in the Son. But listen, Jesus will not settle for being accepted as anything less than what he claimed to be. Nothing less. Lewis would later go on to say, a, a, a man who, mere, who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus would say is not a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic. You know this. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman, or something worse. He says, you can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. That's the truth. John doesn't write it that way. See, I think too many people peer into the wooden manger at the cross, but they spend their life trying to avoid dealing with a wooden cross. I said earlier that God, Jesus came to make God known so that you could know Him. And I, I said that that's why His Son came. Jesus came to exegete 
God for us, if, if I can say it that way. But here's the thing. We can only truly see Jesus when we take all of him. When we receive all of him. And that means above all the cross. Jesus came into the world as a baby in the manger, but that's how he came. That's not why he came. The cross is why. Jesus didn't step out of eternity to be a great teacher, a great moral leader. He, he didn't come to start a movement. He, he didn't come to inspire the masses. He didn't come to be a great example. He didn't come to perform miracles. He did many of those things. But that's not why he came. He came to die. The Son of God came to make God known to us by dying. Dying on a cross. A, a shameful, humiliating, brutal death to die while being mocked by his enemies, to die while being hated by those he loved, to die at the very hands of those he came to save. He came to die in their place. He came because of their sin. He came to die your death. He came to die my death. He came to be my sin. He came to be your sin. He came so that you might know God who he is, so that never again, never again, would you have to make up your own version of God, a lesser God who, who could never save you, but that you could know God, the true God, full of grace, full of truth, that God would never again be a stranger. Jesus came, he's made him known, he's making him known so that you can know him. That's, that's Christianity, that's the Christmas story, the Christmas gift. Christ came to give you his life, he takes your sin, dies your death. So like John said in the verses before this, verse 18 that we looked at, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness hasn't overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And, and to all that receive him, who, who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. So tonight, what we do, it's Christmas Eve service, is we'll conclude by... Just made it. Lighting the Christ candle. Symbol of the light shining in the darkness. The word made flesh and dwelling among us. John said, we've seen his glory. The glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and that's what we celebrate. So these last weeks we've been lighting these candles around, and tonight we'll light the last one. I'll, I'll pray, and then I'll light the the candle, and then what I'll do is I'll take a light from it and I'll pass it around and we'll sing and we'll conclude tonight with a candle lighting. We'll enjoy this time together. So if you would, would you bow with me and, uh, and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you inspired the Apostle John to write. John, who knew 
your son Jesus in the flesh, walked with him and ate with him. Who knew him and the Father who worshipped him as God. And so, Father, we've read these words tonight and looked at them. We've considered what John has written and what he's had to say. Father, we confess that your son Jesus is the Word made flesh. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Father, you sent your Son so that we might know you. Father, who you are, that we might know you in being reconciled to you because of the sacrifice of your Son. And that doesn't happen without what we celebrate tonight in Christmas. So, Father, I pray we would enjoy this evening greatly. I pray we'd have fun lighting this candle. I pray it'd be a great symbol. I pray we'd have a great time with our families and eat a great meal and have fun opening presents and doing all these things. I, I pray there would be great joy in it. And Father, I pray we'd have moments where you would draw our hearts to your Son. I pray we would have moments where we meditate on this. It would be more than nostalgia. There would be great meaning. More than sentiment, I, Father, I pray you draw us into these holy moments of what it is that we celebrate, the mystery. That your son Jesus stepped out of eternity and took on flesh and dwelt among us, lived as a man, died as a sinner, buried in a grave, rose from the dead, is seated at your right hand, and Father, we wait for his return. We ask all of this in his name. May you be honored and glorified in what we do tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.